what's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. No, you don't need a new thermometer. It really is 100 degrees out there. Heat wave warnings blanket the South and Southwest as Mother Nature brings the fire. Presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has a bone to pick with the Biden administration. He discusses being a top target of alleged government censorship. China's involvement in the illegal fentanyl trade, multiple witnesses told Congress that Chinese money laundering operations are a major obstacle in the fight against fentanyl. We bring you their testimony. The CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase is not a fan of so-called Bidenomics. Find out what he says Biden policies and its economic impact boils down to. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Our top news is on the cocaine found in the White House. It remains a mystery who brought it in, but the U.S. Secret Service is reportedly closing the investigation. The agency said the evidence wasn't enough to identify a suspect. Small plastic bags containing white material were spotted in the West Wing on Sunday night. The Secret Service didn't detect usable fingerprints or DNA and there were no clues from surveillance footage. Officials said they were unable to identify suspects from the hundreds of people who passed through the area where the drug was found. Extreme heat alert, more than 100 million Americans are under heat wave warnings across the South and Southwest. Temperatures are set to soar even further in the days coming, in some areas surpassing triple digits. The National Weather Service issued excessive heat advisories and warnings for areas stretching from Florida to California and encompassing nearly all of southern Nevada, western Arizona, Texas, and Oklahoma. The heat alerts cover more than 109 million people. There appears to be no immediate respite in sight, as the intensely hot and stuffy conditions are expected to worsen over the weekend and continue into next week. Over 600 people are killed by extreme heat each year, and older adults, young children, and those with mental health issues and chronic diseases are at the highest risk. Presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says he was the first person censored by the Biden administration. Here's Kennedy talking to Pierce Morgan on Fox News. President Biden was sworn in on January 21st, 2021, and they started censoring me. The White House gave an order to Twitter and to um, Facebook to begin censoring me two days later. Oh, and then I was removed with almost 900,000 followers from Instagram. I'm still being censored. We know the FBI is involved in that censorship as well as a whole plethora of other federal agencies. Kennedy says that social media sites haven't presented him with any actual factual errors he has made despite all the censorship. He believes that's why they conjured up a term like malinformation. The presidential candidate described that as information that is true but would discourage people from complying with COVID-19 countermeasures. Kennedy is scheduled to testify before a House panel next week on the federal government's alleged role in censoring Americans. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia is up for re-election for his U.S. Senate seat next year. But he says a future trip to New Hampshire is not about running for president as a third-party candidate. That's where Manchin will hold a town hall next week with a group called No Labels. It's pushing for a third-party centrist candidate for the White House. So you're not, are you ruling out a third-party bid? 
Well, I've never ruled out anything or ruled in anything. I, I'm, I'm just, this is a strictly a conference that we're having. Common sense. Besides Senator Manchin, Republican Utah Governor John Huntsman will also be an honorary guest at the Common Sense Town Hall in New Hampshire. It will be held in Manchester on Monday, July 17th. An election integrity group is suing North Dakota. They want the state to stop accepting mail-in ballots as long as 13 days after Election Day. The lawsuit could affect other states that accept ballots after Election Day. There are reportedly 18 states plus the District of Columbia that accept mail ballots delivered after Election Day. Democrats previously opposed efforts to curtail mail-in voting. Then President Donald Trump criticized the practice in 2020. Trump said mail-in ballots are out of control and that voting by mail was a whole big scam. More recently, he has said the GOP needs to lean into the system to counter Democrats. The Public Interest Legal Foundation filed a lawsuit on July 7th. It said that although states run elections within their borders, federal law mandates that there be a single national election day. Do you vote in every election? A new report shows that the majority of Americans do not. Let's take a look at how the numbers break down. According to a report from Pew Research Center, only 37% of eligible voters participated in all three of the most recent national general elections. Roughly a third of eligible voters voted in one or two of the last three elections, while 30% didn't vote at all. Meanwhile, only 6% of those who voted for president in 2020 and for a congressional candidate in 2022 reported that they crossed party lines or had voted for a third-party candidate. Chinese money laundering are a major obstacle in the fight against fentanyl. That's according to U.S. law enforcement officials who testified before a House committee yesterday. Here's what they have to say. The Mexican cartel's ability to traffic deadly fentanyl into the United States is greatly enhanced by Chinese money laundering organizations. Steve Kagan is an investigator with Homeland Security. He was one of several witnesses to testify before a House Homeland Security subcommittee on Wednesday. Witnesses said Chinese money launderers are a major obstacle in the fight against fentanyl. These organizations have a vast global infrastructure to clean illicit proceeds for various criminal organizations mostly including Mexican cartels. Another witness who works with the Director of National Drug Control Policy said that China is a major producer of the precursor chemicals for fentanyl. However, the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, is refusing to do its part to stop the production of the chemicals. He says the CCP sometimes even helps transnational criminal organizations to manufacture and distribute the deadly drug. They hold a, a major role in this problem, and they should, as any great nation, hold a major role in its solution as well. And we look forward to them engaging with us in doing that. He said that Chinese money laundering operations are making drug dealers richer at a faster pace than ever. Money laundering that would have taken weeks or months in the past now takes just a few hours because it's gone digital. Witnesses said Chinese organizations partly use cryptocurrency and electronic banking on the dark web to disguise and move their profits. Another witness who works with the DEA said that just last month, his agency exposed Chinese involvement in fentanyl production. DEA agents charge eight Chinese citizens and, for the first time, four Chinese companies with conspiracy to manufacture and import fentanyl into the United States. These individuals and companies sold enough precursor chemicals to produce millions of potentially deadly doses of fentanyl. While we've had some success, there is clearly more work to do. Witnesses said Mexican cartels not only sell fentanyl for what it is, they also add it to other drugs and to counterfeit medications to enhance their effects. 
Many fentanyl victims didn't know they were consuming the substance. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas will testify before the House Judiciary Committee on July 26th. That's according to a letter obtained by CNN Wednesday from Chairman Jim Jordan. It has to do with the House Republicans' investigation into Mayorkas over his handling of the U.S. border with Mexico and their efforts to formally launch impeachment proceedings against him. The House Judiciary Committee grilled FBI leader Christopher Wray over politicization of the agency, while Wray defended the agency. To explore these accusations and the testimony given, I sat down with Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, retired U.S. Navy officer and retired New Jersey police detective. Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure, thank you. Lieutenant, what are some of the key takeaways of Christopher Ray's testimony? Well, I, I could tell you that uh, one, myself, who have worked with FBI agents my entire career, as well as FBI uh, headquarters in D.C., uh, there is indeed a problem with regard to the leadership. Uh, obviously, he was defending the leadership, uh, but at the same time, I noticed that he was also uh, defending the good work that the FBI is doing. So. Uh, it was kind of mixed, uh, mixed uh, uh, bowl, if you could. So tell us a bit more about that, that good work. Well, I can tell you, the agents on the street are doing a tremendous job. And I shared with FBI Director Mueller uh, when I was there that uh, his agents had prevented a further attack on the United States of America after 9-11. And people will never see that because that's done pretty well in secrecy. But I could tell you, uh, a lot of credit to the agents on the street and they deserve a lot of praise and applaud for the work they're doing. Now, about 80% of Republican voters are, uh, they, they feel that the FBI has been weaponized, according to a Rasmussen poll. Why is that? Well, I believe it, the leadership's been weaponized. <clears throat> when you see what, the, the, uh, what we went through with the uh, Russian uh, hoax situation, if you will, uh, getting FISA, uh, FISA warrants that were, uh, uh, did not meet the qualifications nor the regulations of getting those warrants. There was a lot of chicanery going on up at FBI headquarters, at least in my view. And so the people were only exposed to that, but not exposed to the good work the FBI was doing. And why is that, you think? Well, you know, uh, what makes news? Negative stuff, right? Uh, uh, you go out, you find the, uh, uh, an individual you could go after. In this case, it was the FBI. But with any regard to the foot soldiers out there, uh, it certainly was a, a real problem for those foot soldiers to overcome. But now, hopefully, with the uh, committee hearings going on, they'll get down, down to the bottom of what's going on at headquarters there and make some significant changes. What kind of changes do you think need to be made? Well, I've said from day one, a complete and total firing of every single person at FBI headquarters who had anything to do with all of the uh, so-called corruption, if not legally corrupt, morally corrupt, ethically corrupt, they all have to go. That's the only way you're going to solve that problem. And can you give us some examples of, of who exactly needs to be fired? Well, at this point, yeah, I believe that the uh, uh, entire leadership team at FBI headquarters, beginning with Director uh, Ray, I mean, look, they're all part of the problem. I haven't seen yet any real solutions with regard to the problems that were exposed to the American people. And furthermore, uh, we haven't heard the director of the FBI speak unless he subpoenaed uh, or asked to come before Congress. That guy should have had a press release out there. He should have been before the American people saying, look, I'm the director. I agree with you. I'm going to make these changes. But why didn't he? 
Well, your mind. you know, the, the only conclusion I could come to is that he's beholding uh, to the White House. He's beholding to the DOJ. The reason why uh, uh, people don't stand up and speak out uh, and speak truthfully and the reason why they're not transparent is because they're covering for somebody. He may not be covering corruption, but he's certainly covering uh, the ability of the Department of Justice to do what's right. And uh, believe me, they're not doing anything right with regard to uh, the problems we're facing in this country. Now, some people have actually talked about abolishing the FBI or, or defunding it completely, as opposed to just gutting the leadership. Um, what do you think that would mean for all the agents out there doing the good work that we talked about earlier? Well, not only would it be a terrible thing for the agents to face, but it would be a disaster for U.S. national security. Again, I go back to what the people don't know the FBI is doing. Uh, look, they're tracking terrorists. I was part of that way back in the early 2000s. Uh, they're tracking a lot of corruption. They're dealing with a lot of white-collar crime. Uh, and they're also assisting police departments through local joint terrorism task force. So to abolish the FBI is pretty much to abolish America. Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, thank you for your time. Oh, thank you, Chris. Coming up, the Supreme Court could tackle a major case that seeks to end New York City's iconic housing law. Groups say the law is unconstitutional. And the new film Sound of Freedom is seeing big success at the box office. We speak to the studio behind the film. More in just a moment here on MTD News Today. Welcome back. The Supreme Court could hear a case that challenges New York City's rent control law. Critics of the law say it hurts the rights of property owners. Two housing groups sued the city in 2019 over New York's rent stabilization law. They say the law is detrimental for owners and tenants and has stifled New York's housing market for over 50 years. The lawsuit says it's the strictest housing law in the country. The groups now hope the Supreme Court will consider the case after it was dismissed in U.S. District Court and in the U.S. Court of Appeals. The groups say the current law is unconstitutional and constrains the rights of landlords. They've gained major support in the suit from some think tanks, businesses, and real estate groups. Meanwhile, renters are suffering from inflation, and apparently more so than homeowners. The data is not just from New York, but all over the country. Bank of America analyzed customers' payments to identify homeowners and renters. Analysts found a big difference between the two groups when it comes to spending money on things other than housing. That's because rent costs have soared, but the majority of homeowners' monthly payments have stayed the same. But since mortgage rates have doubled in the last year, it's likely the spending difference between the two groups will narrow over time. Turning to another big expense, insurance. 100,000 Floridians are losing their coverage as farmers insurance is pulling out of the state altogether. The company said in a statement it will stop offering its insurance to Florida, including home, auto, and umbrella policies. Affected customers will receive notifications about when their coverage will end and their options for replacement coverage. Florida requires affected policyholders to receive a 120-day notice that their policies aren't being renewed. Farmers said the move was necessary to manage its risk exposure in the hurricane-prone state. The company also says Florida's legal system promotes litigation abuse and excess claims. 
Hurricane Ian last year was the most expensive storm ever to hit the Sunshine State. Farmers said there will be no impact to customers who use farmers' owners' subsidiaries like Foremost Signature and Bristol West. J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon isn't sold on Bidenomics. In an interview with The Economist released Tuesday, the head of the nation's largest bank classified Bidenomics largely as industrial policy. President Biden says his economic theory rejects trickle-down policies in favor of focusing on the middle class. What that looks like specifically is subsidizing particular industries such as manufacturing. Biden says this policy has led to a successful U.S. economy, but Diamond's not convinced. While he is in favor of some industrial policy, Diamond said that's only as it relates to national security and competitiveness. He adds that the policy should be purely economic, not political. Diamond said the $5 trillion stimulus the government authorized to counter the economic effects of COVID caused inflation. He also isn't ruling out the possibility of a recession in the next six months. The overall outlook of the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics CPI report is good, according to, US, to Michael Bussler, professor of finance at Stockton University. I spoke with him about the specifics and what they mean for Americans. Michael Bussler, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Chris, for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. What's your overall take on the CPI report? So the overall take is um, the news is, is good. The 12-month inflation rate, which had peaked at over 9% in June of 2022, is now down to um, about 3%. So the Federal Reserve's uh, efforts to get inflation down by tightening up on the money supply and raising interest rates appear to be working, and the inflation rate is uh, coming down. Still not quite as low as we'd like it, but the trend is good. Now, you talked about some of the negative things. Can you tell us more about those? Yeah, so the overall inflation rate is down to 3%, which is excellent. Um, if you take out food and energy, because those prices fluctuate wildly, you have what's left over we call the core inflation rate. That's running at almost 5%, and that's very troublesome. Um, part of the reason that uh, energy prices have remained relatively low uh, two reasons. One, the uh, Chinese economy, which completely shut down at the end of 2022, hasn't really recovered yet. And as a result, demand from China, the world's second largest economy, is very low, and that's keeping uh, oil prices down. Secondly, oil-producing nations want to see the price of oil up a little higher, probably in the 90 to $100 barrel range. And as a result, they're cutting back on supply. OPEC is doing it. Um, Saudi Arabia is doing a little more than what OPEC is doing, and even Russia is cutting back. And what about housing prices? I'm hearing that they're actually not cooling. So they were cooling mostly because the interest rates um, went up so much. You could get a year ago, you can get a mortgage in the 3% range. Today, it's uh, in the 7% range. So with that, we expected a cooling in demand, which we got in oil and uh, home prices fell. In the last month or two, though, home prices are starting to go back up again. And that's a little bit um, worrisome because that too will add to inflation going forward. Apartment rents are also going up again after they've tended to stabilize. So that's a little worrisome going forward. And how would you describe the overall state of the economy right now? So the economy is definitely slowing down. The first half of 2022, we had negative growth in GDP. 
P and people said, well, we're going into a recession. But then the second half of 2022, uh, GDP grew by almost a 3% rate. Most of that was due to federal government spending that was given to the states, and the states finally uh, spent it. The first quarter of this year, we slowed down to a 2% rate. The second quarter of this year, we'll know in a couple of weeks, the first estimate, most of my colleagues are looking for the one, one and a half percent uh, growth rate. And most people believe that we're likely to slide into a recession before the uh, end of the year. Michael, bring this home for us. What does all this mean for the average American? So for the average uh, American, the, the good news is that the in inflation is moderating. Now, it doesn't mean prices are falling. It just means the rate of increase has slowed, which is uh, good. Uh, if you're looking to buy anything on credit, um, as I was telling uh, everybody, sooner rather than later, because interest rates will continue to, to go up. So looking to buy things on credit, you may want to wait um, a little bit for that. One good point is normally during a recession, the unemployment rate goes up significantly. That's not gonna happen this time. And the reason is we have a labor shortage. There's roughly 10 million job openings and only 6 million unemployed people. So what you'll see is the number of job openings go down, the unemployment rate not go up that much. And if you do become unemployed, it'll be a little easier to find another job than it has been during past recessions. Well, Michael, Michael Bustler, thank you again for your time. Thank you, Chris. My pleasure. Look forward to doing it again. The new film Sound of Freedom is seeing big box office numbers. I have NTD Business's Don Ma here with me. Don, what can you tell us about the movie? Well, Chris, the movie tackles a very tough subject matter about child trafficking, but it does it, does it well. It's getting some good reviews. You know, Chris, if you have the time, I think... You should go see the movie. Um, I think you would enjoy it. Yeah, I saw the trailer about a year and a half ago. It looked really good. So the movie is by Angel Studios. Tell, tell us a bit more about that. So it's an independent film. It's dis distributed by values-based uh, production company Angel Studios. It was originally produced by 20th Century Studios, but Disney put the project on hold after acquiring the studio in 2019. And then Angel Studios uh, subsequently took over the project. Um, I actually spoke with Angel Studios earlier. Um, if you don't mind, let's take a look at that interview. And here to talk to me about the sound of freedom is Angel Studios Senior VP of Global Distribution, Jared Giese. I mean, yeah, Jared, just, just tell us about the success you're seeing with this film. Yeah, thank you. The success has been uh, just amazing to watch. Uh, as there's really been a, a, a movement that's coming around this film, and and that was really our goal from the beginning. Uh, you know, our, our, launching this film on July 4th, um, our mission was um, and continues to be to get two million people in theaters to represent the two million children that are trafficked around the world, um, and we've more than doubled that goal so far, and it's continuing to grow, uh, and which was really our hope from the beginning that people would watch this film and be impacted by it, and want to share it with others. And, and uh, of course, there's lots of competition still, and uh, but we're excited to see that that people are continuing to choose to support uh, Sound of Freedom um, as they go to the theater. I mean, speaking of competition, I think this movie is pretty much doing just as well as other blockbuster movies, you know, like uh, The Dial of Destiny. 
yes, we're right up there and, you know, neck and neck for, you know, some days number one, some days number two, three, you know, we're, we're consistently performing uh, in the, the top box office tiers. And, and, and that's just a testament to, to people's desire to, uh, to support this film and, and, and just really the quality of the film and the storytelling. It's, it's a powerful uh, film that's based on an incredible true story. I think the success of the movie doesn't just say something about the movie itself. Uh, perhaps it also says something about what Americans want. Um, they're, so to speak, voting with their feet, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the reasons we're uh, very bullish on releasing movies in theaters, uh, because it is a community experience. And when you go to the theater um, and you choose a movie like Sound of Freedom, you are saying these are the kinds of stories we want in our community and in your city. Uh, and so you're telling the theater chains that that's what you want. And we've had amazing su support and response from, from all the major theater chains and the mom and pop theater chains all across America who have been happy to, to have this film in their theaters. The movie is obviously successful at the box office. What do you think made that happen? Well, you know, the Angel Studios model um, really leans into um, the support of the fans and, and a community that we build around each one of our films. And so uh, we have what we call the Angel Guild, and it's made up of almost 100,000 people um, across the world who choose the content. And they watched Sound of Freedom, and they said, this is a story that amplifies light, and we would be very disappointed if this was not brought to theaters. And so it scored one of our highest ratings um, with, with our group, and so that community selected this film, and then we brought it to the crowd, who then invested $5 million in two weeks um, to bring the, the, the prints and advertising, the marketing campaign. They funded that to bring that to theaters. And, and then they've been paying it forward. Uh, and so we've, we've launched a, a pay it forward program for theater tickets, where when you watch this movie, you can, as soon as the film is done, you can pull your phone out and scan a QR code and help other people to see it. And so we're seeing people across America scan those QR codes. They're, been, they're, they're impacted by the film, and they want other people to have that same experience. So you can actually watch Sound of Freedom for free in a theater. So if you can't afford to go to the movies or for whatever reason, there are free tickets that have been paid for you that you can get at angel.com slash free tickets. All right, thank you so much today, Jared. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Coming up, two senators introduced legislation to prevent further accounting errors at the Pentagon. That's after a $6 billion mistake was discovered. And a Yale professor finds major companies are still doing business in Russia even after vowing to leave. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back, everyone. NATO leaders are assuring Ukraine that its future is with NATO, but it's unclear when that could be. In an exclusive interview with CNN, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said he has no doubt Ukraine will be invited to the alliance once the war with Ukraine is over. But he also explained why there's still work to be done to shore up their membership. Take a listen. So you have no doubt that after the war, Ukraine will become a member of NATO? I have no doubt that that will happen. And uh, we heard uh, just about every country, uh, heard all the countries in the room uh, say as much. And I think that was reassuring to, uh, to President Zelensky. How much time will it take for NATO to join, for NATO to welcome Ukraine as a full member? I, I won't speculate on that, Wolf. I will just say that 
all of the countries that, uh, that I've witnessed are, uh, are interested in moving as quickly as possible. During the interview, Austin also defended America's controversial decision to support Ukraine with cluster munitions, despite the risk to civilians. He said the Ukrainians have committed in writing that the weapons will only be used in appropriate places, not populated areas. Two Republican senators introduced legislation to prevent further accounting errors at the Pentagon. That's after an error amounting to over $6 billion in funds was discovered. Senators J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley put forward a draft bill to amend the Foreign Assistance Act. The proposed changes would require the Pentagon to use accounting methods that capture the true cost to taxpayers of sending weapons to other countries from U.S. stockpiles. Vance said in a statement that there should be no excuse for accounting errors with a seven-figure price tag. A separate provision in the draft bill would require that the Pentagon calculate the full cost to the U.S. government of providing defense services. The bill is a reaction to the Defense Department's June 20th announcement that the Pentagon overcounted the value of the weapons it sent to Ukraine over the past two years by $6.2 billion. Two senators have reintroduced a bill that would prevent a U.S. president from taking the United States out of NATO. The U.S. has been a NATO member since the alliance was formed. Democratic Senator Tim Kaine and Republican Senator Marco Rubio reintroduced the bill yesterday. Rubio said any decision to leave the alliance should be debated in Congress with input from the American people. NATO began in Washington, D.C. in 1949. It was the first peacetime treaty the U.S. entered that included countries outside the Western Hemisphere. Senators Kaine and Rubio have repeatedly introduced this resolution over the years. Their latest attempt came as members of NATO met in Lithuania. The bill was first introduced during the Trump administration after former President Trump accused NATO members of failing to meet their defense spending commitments. He threatened to leave the alliance if other members didn't contribute more. President Biden had a couple of notable slips of the tongue while in Lithuania at the NATO summit. The commander-in-chief mixed up Russia and Ukraine, as well as two other leaders. Well, we're not waiting for that process to be finished to make the long-term commitments that we're making to Ukraine security. Vladimir and I, we, the, I should, shouldn't be so familiar. Uh, Mr. Zelensky and I... Uh, Russia could end this war tomorrow by withdrawing its forces in Ukraine, wrecking its international borders and ceasing its attacks on its inhumane attacks on Russia, I mean, by Russia on Ukraine. Biden has made similar errors in the past. He referred to Ukrainians as Iranians in his 2022 State of the Union address, saying Putin may circle Kyiv with tanks, but he will never gain the hearts and souls of the Iranian people. The NATO summit in Vilnius wrapped up yesterday. Speaking of Russia, most Western brands left the nation after it began the war in Ukraine, or did they? A new report says some companies aren't following through. When Russia marched into Ukraine, hundreds of companies from other nations announced plans to march out of Moscow, hitting Vladimir Putin's government in the pocketbook and hobbling his war effort. But one year, four and a half months after the invasion, some others are still doing brisk business in Russia, according to Yale professor Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. These are companies that said they were leaving and then reneged, saying, oh, it's too much trouble. It's wartime profiteering. And it is actually uh, aiding 
sadly, uh, uh, helping to fuel Putin's war machine. His research finds although many companies followed through on their pledges, taking millions of dollars out of Russia, some big players did not. Among them, Heineken. Sonnenfeld's researchers say the Dutch company has seven facilities in Russia, 1,800 employees, and is still launching new brands there. Heineken calls the war a terrible human tragedy and says the company remains committed to leaving, but so far has not secured Russian regulatory approval to sell its assets. Also on the list, Mondelez, the company that makes Oreos, among other things. With 3,000 employees and products still moving in Russian markets, the company is being boycotted by some Europeans. Even as it said in a statement last month, it is scaling back in Russia. And there are more. Unilever has called the war brutal and senseless. Philip Morris has said the situation is complex. Nestle last year pledged to sell only essential items. But Yale researchers say non-essential items are still being sold. And all of those companies continue doing business with the Russians. Many suggest divesting themselves from Russia is more costly and complicated than outsiders might imagine, and they don't want to hurt their Russian employees. Sonnenfeld's response? The whole point of the sanctions and the business exits is to put pressure on the average Russian so that the humanitarian thing is to motivate them to act. The companies say on their website that they really do care about the Ukrainian cause, but that not doing business in Russia is more complicated than expected. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Still to come, a British parliamentary committee frowns on the government's China policy, saying approaches to Beijing are completely inadequate. And South Korea's shortage of children's doctors is endangering the lives of children. How did the country get to this point? More shortly here, on NTD News Today. Thanks for staying with us. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with China's top diplomat Thursday in Indonesia. Wang Yi is the foreign policy chief for the Chinese Communist Party. The meeting happened on the sidelines of the ASEAN foreign ministers meeting in Jakarta. It's the latest in a series of increased high-level interactions between Washington and Beijing in an effort to stabilize relations between the world's two biggest economies. The meeting came less than a month after Blinken's visit to Beijing. China and the U.S. agreed to stabilize rivalry and avoid conflict but failed to achieve any major breakthroughs. British lawmakers upgrade warnings of China-related risks, a committee named major flaws in the government's strategy for dealing with threats from Beijing. The level of resource dedicated to tackling the threat posed by China's approach has been completely inadequate. Moreover, until recently, our agencies did not recognize that they had any responsibility for countering Chinese interference activity in the UK, focusing instead on covert activity. The Cross-Party Intelligence and Security Committee warned that China targets the UK extensively and aggressively. 
Chinese companies, cultural institutions, and even ordinary citizens could be co-opted for espionage. The, company, the committee said Beijing has tapped into London's economic policies, trying to control or influence Britain's industry and nuclear energy sectors. The country's conservative party has been calling for a tough stance on China, but Prime Minister Rishi Sunak insists the West should not decouple from Beijing. South Korea is suffering from a shortage of pediatricians, partly a result of the world's lowest birth rate. It leaves hospitals unable to fill posts and raises risks for children's health. Here's the story. South Korea isn't training enough pediatric doctors, and that means long waits for care at children's hospitals. In a Seoul hospital waiting room, Lee Bomi, whose three-year-old boy has pneumonia that hasn't dissipated after weeks of treatment. We had to wait about two weeks to secure a hospital bed because there was a long waiting list, so we kept getting rejected for about two weeks. I was really scared. My son was sick. The country's falling birth rate at just 0.78 babies born to each woman last year has led to widespread closures of pediatric facilities. In the five years leading up to 2022, 65 pediatric clinics or hospitals, representing one-eighth of the country's total, shut down. Doctors are shunning a field they think has no future. Starved of resources, patients and their parents are paying a sometimes grim price. In May, a five-year-old child in Seoul died after failing to find a bed in multiple hospitals. Doctors like Choi Yong-jae worry incidents like that will only increase. Patients are dying. They die while bouncing around multiple emergency rooms, die when it's not a serious disease. It's a travesty. So why aren't more doctors in South Korea drawn to pediatrics? Part of the problem is the low fees in its universal health care. When it comes to children, South Korea's insurance system expects a high volume of patients at a low cost. And that made sense when the birth rate was stable. But as Dr. Lim Hung Tech explains, it hasn't been revised to reflect South Korea's situation now. In foreign countries, the government pays enough to maintain a children's hospital, even if you see 20 patients a day. But it's about $10 per treatment in South Korea, which is not enough to run a children's hospital. So clinics have to see about 80 patients. That means income prospects for pediatricians also rank lowest compared to peers. Official data shows they make 57% less than an average doctor's salary. Compared to a 97% intake rate for pediatric residents a decade ago, it's now tumbled to just 16% in the first half of the year. And it creates a vicious cycle where parents are discouraged from having more children, seeing as there's fewer doctors and hospitals to care for them. South Korea's health and welfare minister Cho Kyo-hong earlier this year said they'll step up measures to improve care. Proposals include more state-backed centers and facilities for emergency pediatric treatment. But talent has already left the pool, according to the Korean Pediatric Association. It says 90% of their members have closed their businesses or left the practice. The group held seminars last month to help members familiarize themselves with better paying fields, and roughly 600 of its 3,000 members flocked to hear talks on skin beauty procedures like Botox and adult chronic diseases. Up next, you may have heard of cat cafes in Japan, but how about a sumo restaurant? Retired wrestlers are putting on demonstrations while tourists dine. The patrons even join in the action. And members of Congress squared off with members of D.C.'s press corps in their annual softball game. 
Find out which of the all-female teams won when we come back here on NTD News. Welcome back. One sumo wrestler spent his two-decade career competing to move up the ranks of Japan's traditional sport. But now he's fighting to entertain a different crowd. NTD's Andrew Thomas steps into the ring. Kota Otori is one of six former wrestlers putting on sumo demonstrations catering to overseas tourists. Visitors are returning in droves after a two-year pandemic blockade. I've always wanted everyone to know about sumo. I never imagined things to be like this now, but I hope it means both foreigners and Japanese people will have greater understanding of sumo. The performance venue opened in central Tokyo in November 2022, a month after Japan restarted visa-free travel. Beneath its vaulted roof is a sumo ring and 14 tables. Patrons pay $75 to eat breaded pork cutlets before watching and joining the action. Jose Aguilar from Monterey, Mexico, had ringside seats with his family. He said he was eager to see the match with his daughter for her 15th birthday. Uh, while we were planning our vacation to Japan, uh, of course, uh, something that always came to my mind is sumo uh, uh, fight. So that's why we were, we were, I was looking for something like this. Former sumo wrestler Yasuhiro Tanaka opened the restaurant. He wanted to find ways to promote the sport. We are now making an effort to tell our guests about traditional culture and tough memories we experienced when we were active professional sumo wrestlers. When we were sumo wrestlers, we couldn't really play around at all, so now I want everyone to be able to earn a salary and live a happy, enjoyable life. Sumo is seeing a resurgence after the Netflix drama Sanctuary about the sport became a hit in May. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida hopes tourism will boost Japan's economy. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Congress and the press are taking out their differences on a softball field. It's actually an annual charity game played by female members. This is the 15th year and the money benefits the Young Survival Coalition. The press corps team, the Bad News Babes, beat Congress 15-9. That's after Congress scored a rare upset victory against the press last year. The press team has won a majority of the games, and the members of the team are usually younger than the congressional team. The competition began in 2009 after Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz was diagnosed with breast cancer. The games have raised a total of over $3 million for a group that supports women under 40 dealing with breast cancer. Turning to health tips, bananas are not only healthy snacks, but they're also great for preventing cancer, preserving memory, and relieving anxiety. Here's NTD's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Bananas are rich in potassium, dietary fiber, vitamins, and antioxidants. Let's look at what bananas can do for the human body, starting with cancer prevention. A report was published in the International Journal of Cancer. It documented a 13-year study in Sweden of over 60,000 women between the ages of 40 and 76. It found that women who ate at least four bananas a week had a 50% lower risk of kidney cancer. Women who ate root vegetables such as carrots and beets also have a lower incidence of kidney cancer. 
A research review was published in Frontiers in Oncology. It described how banana extracts prevent and fight various types of cancer. It does this by regulating different cell signal conduction pathways. Next, let's look at how bananas prevent memory loss. Bananas are a great source of vitamin B6. Vitamin B6 regulates the homocysteine level in the blood. This improves cognitive ability. A study was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. It said that researchers at a university in Boston conducted cognitive tests on 70 men between the ages of 54 and 81. They found that subjects with higher vitamin B6 levels performed better in two memory tests. Research shows that eating fruits rich in potassium helps students to improve concentration and study more effectively. A school in England helped 200 students to pass an exam. They gave the students bananas at breakfast, break and lunch to improve their brain power. Next, let's look at number three, how bananas can improve emotions, anxiety and depression. Bananas contain tryptophan, which the human body can convert into serotonin. Serotonin can relax the body, relieve anxiety and induce the feeling of joy. Bananas also contain B vitamins, which play a vital role in the human nervous system. One clinical study found that high doses of vitamin B6 consumption can reduce anxiety and depression. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Chris Beers.